Good morning, NCC. So good to see you. My name is Wayne Chandler. I'm one of the spiritual directors here. And all right, all right, thank you. And uh, we are in our fifth and final week of this series of conversations we've been having called What We Believe. And we've been going through this thing that's called a creed. This creed is a statement of faith that some of the early church elders got together and developed about uh, a few thousand years ago. So what they did is, because people were asking, well, what do you guys believe? What are your, your, your pillars, your foundations? And this is what they pinned in that room and began to share and to speak and meditate on. And what they would share is they came, came together in their church gathering, kind of like what we are doing now. So this morning, we're going to start that off, just as we have been in the past four weeks, with the reading of that creed. It says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, who suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who live with the Father and the Son together, who is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and we believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. This is what we believe. Good? Okay. So when I was in the fourth grade, I loved recess time. I don't know if any of you guys remember recess, being in school. My favorite thing to do was to play basketball. And so me and a group of about 10 friends, almost every day we'd go out to the basketball court. Um, it was like a regulation basketball court, which if you don't know, that's 10 feet tall. Um, it was one of those adjustable goals. And one day, whoever the maintenance crew had left it down to about seven feet tall. So I'm this little elementary kid, and when we saw that it was seven feet tall, you guys, we were in heaven in that moment, okay? We decided to do a slam dunk contest. So for the next 20 minutes... We're doing tomahawk dunks and alley-oop dunks and trying to do 360s, all of these things. And the further along we got, the more we dunked it, like the more force we were putting into it. And, I mean, we were slamming the ball down, hanging on it, shaking it. So by the end of those 20 minutes of recess, we had destroyed the basketball hoop, okay? The rim was off. That little orange circle was off of the backboard. Like, it was only hanging on by a few bolts. We had bent it, just, you know, always trying to hang on and everything. So I remember that, and then in about fifth or sixth period, I'm sitting in my class, and all of a sudden, I hear over the intercom, would the following students please come to the office? 
And I'm sitting there in my class like, don't say my name, don't say my name, Aaron Escamilla. And so I start to walk down to the the principal's office. I'm sitting there. There are all 10 of us that had been playing basketball, had been doing the slam dunk contest. And one by one, we get called in. The principal asks us, hey, can you tell me what happened to the basketball goal? I knew at that point I wasn't going to lie, okay? It was just, like, it was obvious. I tell him, he's like, hey, you destroyed school property. I know this is going to seem odd to so many of you, but I got paddled at school, okay? Some of you guys may remember that, okay? Back in the day, you could get paddled at school, okay? My parents' policy was, if you got paddled at school, you got paddled at home, okay? And and so I knew this was like double judgment coming to me, you guys, like, This was not a good scenario for me. And just sitting there, like there were a few students in front of me, and I'm almost shaking, like I'm so nervous, like what's going to happen? And I'm pretty sure I know what's going to happen because they're walking out of the principal's office trying to hold back tears, you know, trying trying to be strong. Um, I remember that, kind of that nervous feeling, um, knowing that judgment was coming, right? Knowing that was going to happen. That's what I want to talk to you about today of what the scripture says about God's judgment. What does the scripture tell us about what this life looks like when it ends and when the next life begins? What does the next chapter of this looks, look like? When we've been talking about this creed that um, Wayne just read and that we've been reflecting on the past few weeks, there are a few passages that talk about this. That when the early church leaders and early um, church pastors got together, they wrote into the core of what it means to be a Christian and the core Christian beliefs Things about the afterlife, things about after we die and when we pass on, and what it means for God to bring justice to the world. So let me re-highlight these for you. This is what it says, talking about Jesus, that Jesus ascended into heaven. He sits on the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And it's talking about Jesus' kingdom never ending. And then the last statement is, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, And I look for the resurrection of the dead and life of the world to come. Amen. So let me, before we jump into this and we get to the scripture part, let me explain a few things because as I was reading this and as we've gone through this, I realized some of this wording can be confusing, okay? Even if you've been in church for a while, you can scratch your head and be like, now what are they saying there or what are they trying to convey? So let me help us understand just to make sure we're kind of all starting off on the same place. The first is this. He's going to judge the quick and the dead. I think we all understand dead. What in the world does quick mean? And for whatever reason, when we were translating this from um, probably Latin or Greek that they would have originally wrote this in, and we're bringing it into the English, quick is simply an old English word that meant alive. So it's really basic. It's just a weird way of saying that. But Jesus is going to come to judge those that are alive and also those that are dead. When Jesus returns, there will still be people living here on this world, okay? If you didn't know that, you can be assured of that. The scripture talks about that. There will still be people that are alive here on this world, and he's going to judge those that are alive and also those that have already passed on. And then the last statement says this, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And once again, if you've been around church for a while, that can sound confusing. So let me clarify. The early church leaders are not talking about... um, water baptism here and many times that's what we think of when we think of baptism they are not saying hey in order to have your sins forgiven you have to be water baptized no that is not what they are saying okay paul talks about this he uses it in a spiritual metaphorical sense 
that when we come to Christ, we die to our old selves, to rebelling against God, to our sinful life, to who we were, and we're brought to new life in Christ. He calls this baptism, that we're all in one baptism, this idea of kind of a spiritual baptism, a spiritual transformation change that happens in us. And that's what he's talking about, okay? So he's not saying you have to be water baptized. We realize we're not saved by our actions or by works. We're saved by faith. We're saved by acknowledging, God, I have sinned and I've messed up. And God, you've brought me your forgiveness and your salvation, and I can receive that new life. So that's what he's talking about there. That's really important to understand that he's speaking in a metaphorical sense as he talks about baptism. And then he goes on to say this, the resurrection of the dead. And you guys, as I was just even preparing for the message and thinking about it um, all throughout this week, this is like a whole series in and of itself about end times and God's judgment and resurrection and all of this. So I realize I'm just hitting the surface, but hopefully this helps a little bit. Resurrection is we as believers believe in a physical resurrection, okay? So that after we die, we will also be raised to new life. Do not think of zombies, okay? So just get that out of your mind. That's not what we're talking about this morning. But what we're talking about is those of us that are still alive when Jesus comes back at whatever point he chooses to return that what is mortal, right? All of the pains, sickness, suffering, illness, decaying of our body, that that will be changed in an instant. And God will take what has been dying, what is mortal, and he will change it into eternal, into something that is immortal, into something that cannot decay, cannot die, cannot phys feel physical pain, that our bodies will be physically transformed. This physical substance will be transformed. What about those that have already died? Well, we believe that God will resurrect them in a new body. Just in that same way, our body will be transformed, that they will be resurrected into a new body. That's what Scripture talks about. So that's some of the terminology that we're talking about here when we look at this. You guys, we as a culture and a society, we are obsessed with what will happen next, okay? I mean, I just stopped and I was thinking about this this week. Think about all of the books, all of the TV shows, all of the movies that try to predict the future. What's going to happen? How is this going to turn out? What's going to take place next? And we tend to kind of go in two different directions, which I don't think either are really right. We go towards a utopian society or a dystopian society, right? Utopian that somehow some thought, right? Some word, some phrase, some leader will bring us all together. We will sink all of the nuclear weapons in the oceans. We will throw away all of our guns. We will live in paradise and in peace. No one will ever fight again. There will be no conflict, no war. We, it'll be a utopian, like utopia paradise, some kind of heavenly society that through our actions, through our words, through our minds, that we as humans could somehow bring that here to this earth. And so we write books about how awesome would that be and how great would that be. The other version of that is a dystopian society. And you guys, I could think of way more versions of this, okay? So we just lean towards brokenness, right? That something is going to happen and mess up our world. It's going to be an alien invasion. AI and the robots are going to rise up and we're going to have to fight against them. It's going to be some virus or some sickness that's going to turn everyone into zombies and there'll be a few of us humans left fighting the zombies, trying to, you know, push them back or whatever. Like all of these thoughts, something is going to happen. We're going to descend into anarchy and chaos and there are just tons and tons of books and movies and TV shows about that. We want to know what's going to happen next. 
But let me tell you, you don't have to be like me in the principal's office sitting there nervous wondering because God has a plan. And in the scripture, he has told us. Now, he's not painted the full picture, but he's given us some very specific things about how this story will end and what it will look like as the next chapter or the next book of this story begins with eternity and with spending that time with God. And so I want us to look at this, what the scripture says, what do we know about God's plan? What do we see both about God's judgment and God's justice in the scripture? And what does that tell us about who he is and about how we should respond to that? So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn this morning to Revelation chapter 20. And we're going to start at verse 11. And we see in this that final judgment will bring final justice. Okay, God's final judgment will bring final justice into the world that we live in. So God's final judgment will bring final justice. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 talks about this. This is the last book in the Bible, in the scriptures. And it's written by a guy named John who was on this isolated island. Kind of, He was living there and he had this vision. God gave him a vision of what would take place. If you try to read Revelation, parts of it are very confusing. And then parts of it seem very clear and kind of straightforward. But this is what Revelation 20 11 talks about as all of this is coming to an end. He said, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. That's talking about Jesus being seated on that. The earth and the heavens fled away from his presence and there was no place for them. And then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what had been done and recorded in the books. And the sea gave up their dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in it. And each person was judged according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so there's a lot that even growing up in church at first was very confusing to me. Like, I always assumed... Hell in Hades was the lake of fire, right? But when you read this, that is not the case. Because at some point, God will take hell, whatever that is, and he will throw it in the lake of fire. Once again, different rabbit trail, different sermon for a different time. But it's just an interesting thing I noticed whenever I read that. But what I want to focus in on here is what we see is that there are a vast amount of people that have died and whose name was not written in the book of life who did not receive the gift of God's salvation. And at some point in this, of God bringing this story to a conclusion, they will be judged by God. They'll stand before God. And we're told books, John doesn't say how many books, but there's all these books which record what happened in their life. And God will require us, if we're not saved, to give an account for that. Hey, why did you do this? Like, what happened here? And we will be judged by God according to that. Now, let me pause here. When I talk about this, I realize this. For some of you in the room, for some of you that may be joining us online, this becomes very uncomfortable. And here's why. We want a God who is loving and just as long as he's our definition of loving and our definition of just. We want a God who will answer the evil and the wrongdoings in the world, but he'll be kind about it, right? And so we're trying to mold God into our idea of justice and into our idea of love. And if he doesn't fit into that, we don't like that idea of God. 
And so we try to create our own pictures of who he is. But yet the scripture is very clear about a few things right here. And that is the final judgment will bring final justice. And here's what we need to understand. God is loving. And as a loving God, he is not going to force himself on anyone. He's not going to. I love how one Christian writer and author put this. He said, when we have told God for all of our lives, I'm going to do it my own way. I don't want you to be a part of my life. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm going to figure this out on my own. I don't need your help and I don't want you. That at the end of our life, God will grant that prayer for all eternity. That's what will happen. When we have chosen to reject God for all of our life, in the end, God is not going to force himself upon us and say, no, I'm going to make you have me. Nope, I'm going to make you spend eternity with me. I know you've always said you don't want to be around me, but I'm going to force you. That's not who God is. That's not what love is. That's called a stalker, okay? And that's not a good thing. Okay, so we have to understand that, that when we have rejected God for all of our life, he is not going to make us love him. He is going to answer our final prayer of saying, okay, if that's what you've chosen, then that's how you will spend eternity, separated from me. The other thing that we need to understand is God's goodness and God's righteousness and his love demands justice. I mean, can you for a second imagine a world in which someone close to you, maybe a spouse, a child, a friend, a close best friend, right? Where they are brutally murdered and the government says, it's okay, we're just going to ignore that. Someone that you love, right? A child that's close to you and they are taken advantage of in a very graphic, horrible way. And the officials of the authority saying, hey, we're just going to turn a blind eye to that. We're going to act like that never happened. Would you say that is justice? No, none of us would. We would cry out, right? We do that all the time. When we see injustice, we cry out and we say, hey, something has to be rectified. Something has to be made right because this is not okay. This is not the way the world was meant to exist. And God is going to do that as well. At the end of time, he's going to require justice. Now that justice will come in one of two ways. The first is through his son. And Jesus coming and dying on the cross is what the scripture says. And he said, I'm willing to take the penalty of sin for anyone who will accept it. I'll pay the price. Every lie, every horrible thought, every wicked thing that you have ever done or anyone has ever done, if you will simply just acknowledge it and accept it, I will take your place for what you deserve. I'll take that upon myself. You don't have to face that. I will face that. That's what Jesus says. And the justice of God will be answered by the wrath he poured out on himself in his son, Jesus Christ. The other way justice will be served is you and I can choose to say, no, I don't want your help. And I don't want what Jesus did on the cross. And I don't acknowledge that that was the penalty of my sins. And in that moment, God will require that we pay that penalty then. If we will not accept what Jesus did, then we will require, be required. Justice requires someone to pay the penalty for that sin, for the wickedness that we have done in our life. Now, here's the thing is, we don't get to be judged by our neighbor. I'm not as bad as that person. Well, I don't do the things that individual does. And God, I'm looking pretty good. Our sin is our sin. Doesn't matter what it is. We have rebelled against the holy 
loving, and righteous God, and we will have to give an account for that. Not was I as bad as Stalin or Hitler or anyone else we want to put their name there. God, I rebelled against you, and I chose to do things my own way, and that requires justice, God. Final judgment will bring final justice. Church, I realize this is not a popular message. And can I be honest with you? You can turn on podcasts and Christian radio and talk shows, and there are even church pastors and church leaders, and we're trying to rewrite this. Because it's hard, you guys. It's easy to paint this beautiful picture of a weak God who can just wave his hand and forgive everything. It's difficult to imagine a God who is so righteous and so holy that he will require an account for the wickedness in our life. And we don't like that, but this is what the scripture says. And I want to bring you back to this. At NCC, something that we say all the time, scripture will shape our life. Not public opinion, not what's comfortable in the culture around us, that we will stand on the word of God, and God, we will accept what your word says, and we will live accordingly, okay? So we believe this. Final judgment will bring final justice. Now, if you thought that was difficult, just wait till this next one. Because church, you don't get a pass, we will be judged as well, okay? So if you're a follower of Jesus, you're like, yeah, I did that church thing. Yes, I tried to love Jesus. I tried to walk with him. Great. We don't get a pass. We will be judged as well. So let's read this. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 says this. This is um, Paul. It's the guy who wrote, wrote a lot of the letters and books in the New Testament. He's writing to a church in a town called Corinth, and this is what he writes to them. If anyone builds on this foundation, he's talking about living a life that reflects Christ, so living a life that, that is honoring to God. He said if you build on that using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, that our works will be shown for what they are, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer a loss, but yet will be saved. If you have your Bibles, you can highlight that part, because that's really important to what he's saying, and yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So this is Paul, and he's writing to the church in Corinth. He's writing into people that are trying to be Christians in a very difficult culture and society. When you look at the city of Corinth, there was a lot going on there. And so they're trying to reflect Jesus in a very difficult time. And this is what he says. You're going to be judged by God, and you're going to give an account for everything that you've done. But listen to what he says. This is not a judgment of salvation. And that's really important to understand that, okay? Okay. So as followers of Jesus that have said, God, I recognize I mess things up. I'm sinful. I need your forgiveness. Jesus, I'm asking for you to come and, and give me your forgiveness, and I want to live for you. Like, once we've done that, we, we are saved. We're living in a process, right, with God. But what he does say is, you're still going to be judged according to what you've done. And this is the picture he's trying to get you to be able to see this and trying to get me to be able to see this. So he said, imagine this, you're standing in front of God and he's sitting on a judgment seat. This was something, um, the words that Paul's using here, it's bima in the Greek, and it was kind of a, a current knowledge or term of kind of like a courtroom during their time. And he said, you're sitting there and you're going to take everything you've done and put it into a fire. And if it is a reflection of Christ, it's going to last. 
But let's be honest, we don't always live like that, do we? And we were selfish, and we lied to our boss. We took something that wasn't ours. We said something or thought something hateful towards someone else, right? And Christ has forgiven that, but in that fire, that stuff's just going to go up really quick. All of that's just going to, man, it's going to be instantly burned away. And what will be left will be those moments where you chose to listen to Holy Spirit. And he said, I want you to give to that person, and you gave to them. Or I want you to share my story with that person, and you shared it. Where you reflected the love of Christ. Where it was difficult, but you held your tongue and did not say what you wanted to say. And instead you prayed, Lord, help me love that person that's hard to love. All of those things are going to last in the fire. All of those things are going to survive. And there's this imagery of you're going to take those and present those as an act of worship to God, of a gift to God. God, here is my life, Lord. Here's what really mattered. Here was the substance of my life, God. And I give it to you, Lord. I give it back to you because you are worthy of it all. Okay, so it'll be this act of worship. Now, here's the challenge Paul gives us. What's going to last? Like, is more of your life going to be burnt up or will more of your life last? And Paul's challenging us, make your life worthwhile. Church, take the gifts that he's given you, the gifts of hospitality, the gifts of administration, the gifts of faith, the gifts of prayer, the gifts of sharing that, the gifts of evangelism, all of these things that Christ has put in your life and use them for his kingdom. Use them for his glory. Use, their, use them to be on mission with Jesus and to partner with God to build his kingdom. That's what Paul is telling the church. That's what I want your lives to be like, that every day you would be living in a way that says, God, what do you want my life to be like today? How can I help the world to see your love, God? How can I help those around me to understand your goodness and your compassion? This is what Paul is telling the church, that live this kind of life. This is the way that you should live so that when you stand before God, once again, this isn't a question of heaven or hell. He said, that's already been decided. You're a follower of Jesus. But we want to live a life that gives the most to God. It says, God, I'm going to worship you because we will have to give an account for that. I think of Spider-Man. I don't know if we have any Spider-Man fans. To who comes great power is great responsibility. I butchered that quote, but you guys get the heart of it, right? With great power comes great responsibility. That's what God is saying to us, right? He's saying, hey, I've given you so much. I've given you my love. And now I expect you to give that to others, to demonstrate that, to reflect that to those around you that are broken. Let me end with this thought right here, and it's this. We are motivated by love and not by fear. We are motivated by love and not by fear. Here's what I mean by this. The purpose in me telling you all of this today, that at the end of time, anyone that has not received Jesus will be judged, that those of us that are followers of Jesus will be judged. I'm telling you all of that not so that you get scared and think, well, I don't want to go to hell, so I guess I, guess I better do this church thing. That's not how we live our lives. Okay? That's not the heart of God. God's not trying to scare you into heaven. That's not his desire. His desire is he wants a relationship with you. And that the way that we live our lives, even as followers of Jesus, we're not living in fear like, man, if I don't do enough good stuff, all of it's just going to burn up and I'm only going to have a few things. That's not what God is saying. He's not wanting you to live like that. 
He's wanting everything that you do to be motivated by love. That your life is so full of the love of God and so full of his compassion and his love that it just simply pours out of you every day in every moment that it's impacting others around you because of the love of God. In Matthew 25, 40, when Jesus is talking about this kind of thing, that living as believers and the good things that we do, like feeding the poor and feeding the hungry and clothing those that are naked and inviting strangers into our house, visiting those in prison, this is how he ends this in 2540. He says, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it unto me. Jesus is saying this wasn't about some judgment. This wasn't about some jewels and some stones and some gold. He is saying this. He said, when you did that, you did it out of love for me. That's what this should be motivated by. The way that you demonstrated those acts to those that were in need and those that were hurting it should be motivated out of a love for Christ. That's what it's important. That's what matters. We are motivated by love and not by fear. Can I tell you this? Fear will only keep you in a relationship with Jesus for a very short time. It's just a poor motivator. Love and seeing the goodness of God, I believe, will keep you in a relationship with him for all of eternity. And that's what he challenges us with. And this is God's desire is he loves us. We can look at this world, and I know I've talked to so many people that do of like, how could God possibly send anyone, you know, into hell or into an eternal separation with him? That's not God's desire. His desire is to be with us. And we see that through the scriptures. If you know the story of the gospel, you know this, that Jesus paid with his own life so that God could be in a relationship with us. He loved you so much that God was really willing to wrap himself up in flesh, to live in the brokenness of our world, to leave heaven and to come be close to us because he wanted a relationship with us. That's God's desire. That's what he wants is he wants to spend eternity with us. And so here are our action steps. How do we respond to this this morning? I just want to give you two simple ways. The first is this, it's that we that are followers of Jesus would simply, every day as we're living this life, pray this prayer that says, God, how can I reflect you? I've mentioned this before, but this is how I pray this. I start my day by asking, Jesus, if you were 44 years old, that's how old I am, you guys, <laughs> and if you lived at 107 Sunview Street, and you were the lead pastor of NCC, and you were married to Sarah, and you were the parent of nine kids, and had my friends, what would you do today? And God, how would you respond to the situations that I'm going to face today? God, how would you spend your time? How would you spend your resources today, Jesus? And then I just try, as I'm going throughout my day, to slow down enough to listen to his voice and say, this is how you want me to respond. Jesus, this is what you would do, I believe, if you were me. We're asking that question because we know we're going to give an account for every moment. And we want to live that as a reflection of Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, that means you're on mission with Jesus. So you're listening to Holy Spirit about how he's directing you 
And if there's moments where you can share the love of God with other people. Now, let me say this, because I think we mess this up sometimes. We think sometimes that means I've got to go to my coworker and say, do you know you're going to hell? Do you? Do you? Huh? You know how bad it's going to be? It's going to be really hot there. And if you think Texas is hot, just wait, okay? That's not what God is telling us to do, okay? We're being led by His Spirit to demonstrate the love of God and to invite people into a relationship. I would guarantee the majority of our family members and friends, they already know they're broken. What they're looking for is, what's the response to my brokenness? They need to understand that there is a God who loves them and who's already made a way back into relationship with Him. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you, God wants a relationship with you. And so I want to pray for us this morning. If you would take a moment, just bow your head and close your eyes. And you may be here in this room or you may be joining us online. Maybe someone invited you or maybe you were just scrolling through videos and you got to this on social media. I want you to know that God wants a relationship with you. If you don't hear anything else this morning, if you forget the rest of this message, know this, that God loves you so much, he was willing to give his own life for you so that you and I could be brought back into relationship with him. And I'm going to lead us in this prayer, and this prayer is very simple. It just acknowledges the sin and the brokenness in our life. And we're praying, God, I need a relationship with you and I need forgiveness. So if you pray this, we believe that God begins to work on the inside of you, that he does, he starts that relationship, that he forgives the sins of your past and he begins to walk with you. And that's all that this prayer does. So I'm going to invite all of us to say this together this morning. Um, we want to pray this together because we don't want anyone saying this alone or anyone praying this by themselves. So even if you're at home by yourself, would you pray this out loud with me? Repeat this with me. Let's pray this together. Jesus, I come to you. And I pray for your forgiveness. I admit that I've sinned. And I invite you into my life. Be the Savior of my life. Be the Lord of my life. Give me a brand new start. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Now, church, can you just put your hands together and celebrate? I want you to know this, if you prayed that prayer, maybe you've been disconnected from God, maybe it's your first time praying that prayer, the Bible says that all of heaven rejoices, and I want you to know we are excited for you taking those steps and starting a relationship with Jesus, and we would love to celebrate with you and make sure that you're not trying to do this Christian thing on your own or trying to do this by yourself. We have people that want to encourage you and walk with you, and so um, I want to encourage you to do this. If you prayed that prayer you can go to newcommunity.co slash connect track. So newcommunity.co slash connect track. And it's just a class that we have. And we start that class talking about some real simple stuff like who is Jesus and what does it mean to be saved and what are your next steps like starting to follow Jesus. And we do this every month and then we go on and talk about how God's gifted you and how you can serve others and use your gifts. And so I want to encourage you to do that. And Joseph, am I okay in saying if anyone's here this morning and they want to jump in on Connect Track, they can? Okay, yep, so we can do that. It's our first week of Connect Track for this month. And if you want to do that, you're here in this service. Second service doesn't get that option. But if you're here in first service and you're in person, 
or even if you're online and you want to drive to the church and be a part of Connect Track, you can do that. We have breakfast, but we want to help you start that relationship with Jesus. We don't want you doing this by yourself. Let me pray one final prayer over us this morning. And I know I say this all the time, but I'm going to pray, but I don't want you to repeat this after me. I want you to have a conversation with God. And maybe there's something we said today, or if you've been here over the past few weeks, that God challenged you with, with what we believe. And I just want you to pray, Lord, help me to start living out, Lord, these things of my faith, these core beliefs of Christianity, God, to live in a way that reflects you. Let's pray together this morning. Jesus, we come to you. And God, in your scripture, you've not hidden how we're supposed to live our lives. God, you've been very direct and very upfront with how you've called us to live, to reflect your love, God, to reflect your goodness to the world around us. God, you've given us your word, and God, you've spoken to us, God. And so I pray this morning, help us as a church to live this out, God. We don't want these to just be doctrine statements or kind of theological statements, God. We want to put these into practice in our life. We want it to change us, and we want it to also impact those around us, Lord family members and friends, Lord. So I'm praying, Holy Spirit, live through us. God, direct us and guide us. We pray this in your name. Amen.